Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go? Today we are in Thermopolis at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, and we're here with Jack Turnbull, who's going to be our, our guide and the person to take us through this and, and explain how everything works and just what is here. We're excited to be here. This is an awesome museum. I've been through it several times myself, and the displays here are out of this world and, well, otherworldly anyway. I mean, the past world, uh, they've got full-mounted dinosaur skeletons and, and a whole history of, of paleontology stuff. So let's go, Jack. All right, Lauren, uh, thanks for the nice introduction. Um, here at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, we do have probably one of the best fossil collections in the United States, okay, if not in the world. So, and when people usually arrive here, uh, we suggest that they start here through this long corridor that we're standing at the head of called the Walk Through Time. And it's a chronological presentation of a lot of those fossils, you know, indicative of past life here on the planet. So, well, let's get started. All right. So, the first uh, area that people encounter is a little bit of geology here on a global scale. People have heard the term plate tectonics, so we show them a map and some explanation here if they want to take the time to learn about it, basically meaning the movement of the Earth's crust. Okay, it's broken up into plates. The continents are sitting on these plates, and the amazing thing about it is because the rock underneath is plastic in the upper mantle, and it's uh, very warm, very hot, right, which accounts for its plasticity, it's moving. And we think that they move in these convection currents. And when the currents come toward the upper part or the lower part of the upper crust of the, of the planet, it drags on the continents, which are sitting on these plates. And so think of a hard-boiled egg that you crack on the countertop and you get that shell broken up into all those little plate-like features. That's exactly what we think the crust of the Earth is like. And so... These plates are doing a dance with one another. They're colliding and we have separation of plates in some areas. And where the separation occurs, we've got volcanic material. Basically and earthquakes also, correct? That's right, yeah. And do you up. guys also go with the theory or, or the belief or is it fact or whatever that all the continents were at one time joined together and then drifted apart? Or is that just something I've heard? And no, that's which has been at least three times that are recorded in the rocks. Okay, I would still call it a theory. Okay, because I wouldn't call it a law or a definite fact. We're still investigating all the ramifications of this, but <clears throat> the rocks are telling us that uh, we look at the continuity between the rock formations and the fossil record globally. We see that it had to be, you know, uh, a, a situation that occurred about three times in, in the last couple of billion years, yeah, where the wow. continents came together then moved apart, came together, moved apart, came together, moved apart. The last time being about 250 million years ago. And uh, this was somewhat intuitive for some geologists, even before they were able to get up high, you know, with aerial photography, before the invention of airplanes, or, you know, be able to see the world. But they were able to look at maps because of what mariners had done right. in finding the coastline. And it didn't take a rocket scientist, so to speak, to look at how the continents kind of looked as if they might have fit together at one time. 
And uh, so some people, some early geologists who postulated this and proposed it uh, were uh, ridiculed for it. You know, Imagine was, that. Well, because it was, a, it was a hard mechanism for geology at that time to understand. Right. Because they did not have the concept of, of separate plates on the crust. Okay, the, the thinking was that the continents had never moved, that they had grown and accreted, is the term that we use, in their original positions. Because every continent has what we call uh, some of the pockets of the oldest rocks that are known on the crust, uh, dating to about four billion, uh, you know, two and a half to three billion years old. And um, so it looked as if they all grew from these pockets of original rock, okay? Well, that is probably true, but the difference is now that those cratons, as we call them, or places of original rock, have been moving. Right. <laughs> okay, have been moving as the continents grew. So anyways, it's a pretty good map and some good explanation about, about that. A um, little bit on the timeline, how old we think the planet is, about a little over 4 billion years old, coming into a kind of semi-solid, solid state. Um, and... Uh, but the oldest fossils that we have only date back to about two and a half billion years old. Okay. That's still pretty old. Yeah, and there is some work, a lot of work being done in what we call micropaleontology now, looking for microfossils that perhaps would have pushed back the advent of bacteria, you know, single-celled forms of life even farther than the two and a half billion years. Um, but our first exhibit here is, um, you know, one of the oldest uh, types of fossils that are found. What you're looking at are the fossilized remnants of a colonial structure by cyanobacteria. These are single-celled organisms that, much like corals, uh, live together, okay? And as generations die, they leave their little apartment houses behind, their, their little mineralized cubicles that they make for themselves and tie them all together into a mat. And then a new generation comes along, builds on top of it and whatnot, and we get the succession of, of, of mats. Um, cyanobacteria, we also think were the first bacteria that we know about that uh, practice photosynthesis and may have played a big role in putting oxygen into the air, taking carbon dioxide out and putting oxygen into the air, which eventually opened the door for a new form of life to, to emerge, namely animals, right? Yeah. So no, the amazing I, thing I, about stromatolites, which is the name we give to these fossils, is that they're still with us today. The cyanobacteria are still in the ocean today, okay? And they're found in a few places in the earth, uh, on, on the globe. Um, most famous places, Shark Bay in Australia here, nice picture of it, so, yeah. Something else I'm noticing is that uh, a lot of these, or most of these uh, fossils that you have here are not from Wyoming, but they're from kind of all over the world. Yes. Uh, so you've got a wide variety of fossils from everywhere. Yeah, that's true. And the whole why collection. Why is it you're here in Wyoming, Thermopolis, Wyoming, with the museum that's so outstanding? Oh, why is it here? Why is it here? Well, it's uh, primarily the work of uh, you know uh, the gentleman that founded the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, Dr. Burkhart Pohl. He's uh, actually Swiss German, and back in the early '90s, he fell in love with Thermopolis, and he had this crazy idea about you know, finding fossils here in Wyoming and trying to keep them in Wyoming instead of having them shipped out all over the world, which has been the track record for most of the last century and a half. And uh, he liked Thermopolis. He thought it'd be a good place to put a museum. And, uh, well, he didn't just limit it to the digging that we do here in Thermopolis and the 
and the dinosaur material that we find here. So we began to collect from all over the world and bring in stuff to create, you know, what we have now, the collection. So it's uh, been 27 years in the making. This other cap, this other uh, uh, exhibit here is, uh, you can see, we say, call it metazoan origins, whereas the cyanobacteria are protozoans, they're single-celled animals. We have some of the earliest fossils known of multicellular life, which is what metazoan really means. And these are a very fascinating group of fossils. We don't know, really know for sure whether they're plant or animal. It's just been recently that one um, uh, genus of these uh, types of um, uh, organisms was uh, uh, purported to be uh, have some evidence that it was animal in nature. And uh, but this is all kind of micro work being done on them. It's known as the, they're known as the Ediacaran uh, organisms or biota, and they're found in Canada, they're found in Australia, and they've been found in China. They are sort of soft body. They're the first evidence we have of body form on a macro scale. That is, you can see it. You don't need a microscope to see them. But it's hard to tell, you know, whether they're plant, animal, fungi, or whatever. Okay, so it's an exciting field in paleontology. It's, uh, it, it's, <clears throat> it's been an enigma for a long time, and there's still a lot we have to learn about them. The walk through time continues, and it's basically arranged in chronological order as uh, new life forms came on the planet as evidenced in the fossil record. So we wow. see the arthropods, right? The arthropods are the oldest and still today the largest phylum or uh, major group of animal life on the planet. Insects, spiders, right? Arachnids, uh, You've got scorpions. you a big scorpion there. Yeah. That spider's awful big too. Yeah, well, yeah, they get bigger than that in some parts of the world. Uh, interesting thing about scorpions is that According to the fossil record, it's one of the oldest body plans that we know of among animals. In fact, scorpions began in the ocean. The first scorpion-like uh, body plan is found in the ocean, as is all early life. Um, and we give them the name as Eurypterids. They had a slightly different, uh, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> characteristics to them. They didn't have the big pinchers or anything like that, but they scurried along the ocean bottom. But at some point, they they made the transition to land. Some paleontologists think that they were the first complex life to actually emerge from the sea and be able to survive on land to any great degree. Um, and the largest uh, fossilized scorpion, once they hit land, I believe is about seven feet long. Oh. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, so arthropods and cool parade. You've got here. We have a nice display on the on everybody's favorite fossil arthropod, the trilobites. These are animals that <clears throat> have gone extinct. They're a little bit like horseshoe crabs. Um, the trilobe means you know three lobes, and you can see the body is divided into three lobes, right? And like horseshoe crabs, they had legs underneath, pairs of legs, so they have jointed, paired legs. So they're arthropods. They have exoskeletons like arthropods and they're segmented bodies. Okay, so um, they're highly collectible in lots of places. They're not that controlled. It's a fossil that you can usually, sometimes you need permission depending upon, you know, the land you're on. But um, most government land, you know, allows people to collect trilobites okay, as long as you're sensible about it. So, uh, yeah, and great trilobite fossil exhibit here. Mass death by trilobites. This is one of the best fossils we have in the museum. 
And this rock is what, probably five foot by five foot with mm -hmm. 40 of them on here? It's a pretty good guess. It's been counted about 60, I believe. About 60. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, that's an amazing fossil piece. Right. Yeah, and they just all died on the seabed and they're all piled on top of each other. This came from Morocco. And uh, so uh, the best clue we have as to what may have happened to them, since their bodies are not shattered or broken up, there's no predatory impact uh, indicated here. Uh, that they probably died of anoxia. That is, occasionally waters will lose their oxygen levels, right? They drop so low that the animals no longer can get oxygen out of the water. So, so you do? Yeah, 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 they're interesting animals. Mollusks, um, I mean, one of the second largest uh, uh, animal groups on the planet today. They go back quite a ways. Uh, they're usually, the shells are recognizable to a lot of people. We have squid-like creatures called belemnites and who leave us behind the, um, the uh, hard fossilized remains of their shell, usually straight conical shells. Okay, and ammonites, which are pretty well recognizable. These are the spiral-shaped um, shells that you see here. As the animal grows, it makes a chamber in which it lives. It, gets, it makes it larger and larger as it grows. Uh, ammonites are, are also highly collectible. Now, not all of them had perfect spirals. Sometimes they had a straight shell. Sometimes they had sort of crazy-looking shells. And we've got some really nice displays of ammonites here. You do, yeah. There, there. You can find them in Wyoming. They're quite plentiful in Wyoming if you know the right rock formation to work in. Right. So we move on and we have a little display here with echinoderms, uh, a very abundant fossil found in the <clears throat> fossil record, another animal that's uh, with us today still, although maybe in smaller numbers than existed in the past, crinoids. Um, I have fun with kids with this. I always say, hey, what are you looking at? What do you think? Animals or plants? Right? And, they look uh, like plants yeah, to me. I know, they do, but they're animals, so... And that's, that's a couple of other really nice slabs with lots and lots of fossils. Oh, yeah. These are beautiful fossils. They are. Yeah, and very well, very well pres uh, preserved and very well prepared by yes. some really, really great uh, preparators. Uh, some of them have been, been done in the United States. Many of them were done in Europe <clears throat> before coming over here. No, echinoderms um, uh, have, have the sort of basic five appendage radial pattern that we have to our body form. And they're related to, uh, you know, sea stars. Starships, and, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, <clears throat> sea slugs and, uh, and urchins, right, have the same group. So echinoderms are kind of fascinating. Uh, and still with us today. A little bit on plants. There's another great fossil where oh, you can yeah. see crinoids are rather plentifully preserved right there. And uh, so much like plants, they're, they're basically filter feeders. They're what we call sessile. They attach to the bottom of the ocean or to anything else they can attach to with a root-like structure. And then they just sort of filter the water going through. And those arms that they have that look like petals, they're actually where they absorb nutrients from all of the small animal you know, life that's in the ocean. Kind of like baleen whales do, the big right. whales, right? They filter the water through... Right, and they have like a sticky mucus substance on these membranes that gather up all the small critters, and that's how they get their nourishment. Uh, more crinoids here, a little bit more delicate looking, kind of a feathery type crinoid. Uh, beautiful fossil here where you can see what we think is a primitive sea cucumber, sea stars, brittle stars, and our familiar trilobite up there. So. 
that's another really nice slab. So, so how hard is it to prepare these to where they have the definition and the, and the look that you see in this finished product? Is it, that it can take months and even years. I mean, even dinosaur bones, you know, skeletons of dinosaurs, you'd think big animal, probably doesn't take too long. Of course, a lot depends on how hard the rock is and how, how damaged the, the fossil material is. Most of the time, you know, fossils come out kind of broken, right? And uh, especially big stuff, like the dinosaur material. So we literally have to clean them, glue them together, so forth. It's one of the reasons why you see a lot of casts and replicas, because the original material, you know, isn't really all that photogenic, so to speak. Right. You turn the corner here and we get into the ver vertebrates, right? Animals with backbones, okay, which actually are a subgroup of a larger group known as the chordates. And one of the earliest groups, of course, we're still dealing with life in the ocean, um, is uh, fishes. And so we've got a pretty nice display of fish fossils here, including the <clears throat> earliest forms of, of uh, fishes that had uh, <clears throat> primarily cartilage in them as opposed to hard bone. Okay, and you also see a change in the body plan. You don't see the segmented body with the jointed legs like the arthropods. You don't see squid-like creature with multiple arms, right? You're beginning to see what we now see as kind of the more familiar swimming body plan because they have what is called a notochord in them, which is sort of a precursor to the spinal, what we call the spinal cord, okay, or the backbone in our body. And it allowed them to swim by, you know, moving in a kind of sine wider like you know, a type fish. of thing, like a fish does today. Polywalk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely see the fish form that we find in these early um, <clears throat> in these early vertebrates. It didn't take too long, geologically speaking, before they began to look like fish. Okay. So and they got wow. big and they got fierce. They got big. Yeah, they got big. And this is a good example of two. Uh, one, um, we would say, is obviously a carnivore. It ate other fish, whatever else, maybe even trilobites. Um, these were the armored fishes, known as the placoderms. And uh, they didn't have true teeth, but you can see that the bony plates that created a kind of an armor around the neck, the shoulder area, and the skull had these sharp projections on them. So they served as grasping teeth-like structures. Whereas a cousin here, Titanichthys, this Dunkleosteus over here, when I was a small kid studying uh, prehistoric life, that Dunkleosteus used to scare the heck out of me. I'd see pictures of that. Um, that's pretty good-sized fish. Uh, they got even bigger than that. Titanichthys over here, you notice, doesn't have the sharp projections, right? Yeah, so we believe that he was a filter feeder as well kind of like the baleen whales are. But today. a person could easily fit through his mouth. Uh, yeah, small person. <laughs> but I don't think he'd be too interested in you because he wouldn't have any way to process you. Right. At least according to the fossils that we see. Now, were these breathers <clears throat> through gills? Or yes. They, so they, yeah, they're true they fishes. Had, they had developed gills. Mm -hmm, yes. They're true fishes, yeah. And then, of course, in the fossil record, we also have the fishes that are very interesting to us because they have a different kind of a fin. You've probably heard them called lobe fins. And it's where the, 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 the thin part of the appendage is not directly attached to the body. It has what appears to be like an extension to it, kind of like an arm or a leg, right? Very short, right? <clears throat> and this allowed them to maneuver the fins, okay? A lot like we kind of maneuver our hands and our feet. So 
And these are what we believe are ancestral to eventual, you know, formation of legs and whatnot to get animals out of the ocean, certain groups, okay, evolving in a tree-like type of evolution uh, to landforms. The coelacanths, um, which are demonstrated here, and often called the living fossil because it was thought to have gone extinct, okay? Um, and uh, but in 1938, one of them was dredged up in the fishing nets of African fishermen off the east coast of Africa. And ever since then, we've been able to film them, caught more of them, and uh, this is a life-size replica of the coelacanth. Isn't that interesting that they think they're totally gone and here they come back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise, wow. surprise. No matter how certain you may be about things in science, you always have to leave that small percentage of open door. I mean, it would be truly scientific because we've been proven or have been gotten surprises to show that our assumptions not are not always not always right on. But that's what science is all about. It's having that little door open for something to come along, new evidence to come along, in which case we change our mind. Yeah. It's <laughs> Here we have hard our... to get the mind to change sometimes, though, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Kind of like we can were be. talking back there at the beginning with the continents all being together and the people that yeah. first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about the continents is that we can actually measure it now. Right. Right. Yeah. So I can tell you with some authority that North America, the North American plate, that has the continent on it, the exposed continent, is moving a little over about an inch west, northwestward every year. Huh. Yeah. We move into this area here. We move from the fishes. We have this beautiful display here, what we call the fin-to-foot display, right? This is showing the transitional forms that have been found in the fossil record during a, a, a period of geologic time in which we see the transition to the formation of legs and toes and feet. And it's, uh, it's, it's an excellent display. If you take the time to read through it, it will lay out the, uh, the pattern that we see and how we believe it, it developed. Uh, so it's, uh, it's one of the better displays here in the museum. <clears throat> yeah. It's here. hard to rate what's the better display. <laughs> Every corner you turn, the displays are just awesome. You get toward the end of the walk through time. We've now moved through a number of geologic periods, and we're in a period that we call the Permian. And this is the, the last period before the, uh, of the Paleozoic era, that we give it that name, and before we transition into the Mesozoic era, which is the time of the dinosaurs, the time at which they rose to ascendancy on the land. And the reason for the demarcation between the two, um, the two eras is the advent of the worst mass extinction that we know about to have taken place about 248, 250 million years ago um, uh, on the planet. Depending upon whose research you read, uh, anywhere from 75 to 90% of all animal and plant life on the planet went bye-bye, went extinct. And uh, including a uh, most representatives of a large, fairly large group of animal, animals that we call proto-mammals. That is, they were the beginnings of the mammalian line. But with this extinction, they pretty much get wiped out. And in the vacuum that was left after the extinction, for some reasons that we would not clearly understood, we think a lot of it had to do with climate changing at the time. 
because it was also a time when this extinction took place. It also coincides with the last breakup of the continents, moving apart as we see them today. Okay, so that 250 million years ago, we had a you know unified land mass where all the continents were together, and from that point in time, for the next 10 million plus years, we'd start getting the separation, this rifting that takes place right down the middle of it. And that's now our Atlantic Ocean today. Okay. Yeah. So the Atlantic Ocean is getting larger as Europe and Africa, Eurasia and Africa move eastward, the Western Hemisphere continents moving westward, right? Volcanic material coming up in the middle of the Atlantic and spreading out at the expense of the Pacific, which is getting crunched all around its edge, getting smaller. Huh. So, so we see the proto-mammals, and we also see what we believe the ancestors to the dinosaurs were, who called the archosaurs. Okay. <clears throat> I usually look at the kids and say, yeah, a bunch of fast-running, two-footed super chickens that were running around <laughs> at this time. <clears throat> but they definitely appear to be the anatomical antecedents to what we call dinosaurs, which were the land animals, of course. A lot of people think that the reptiles, the big reptiles, some of them quite fearsome uh, in the oceans are dinosaurs. They're not. Dinosaurs are the land animals. The marine reptiles are anatomically very different from them. Same thing's true of the flying reptiles, the pterosaurs, which we begin to introduce here as well. Okay? Um, They're pretty small at the beginning. Well, small or up to one species that we have, one genus that we have, uh, Quetzalcoatlus, about a 40-foot wingspan, size of a small plane. Yeah. <clears throat> so the pterosaurs come on the, on, uh, on the scene. Uh, reptiles flourish in the oceans, become the marine reptiles, and the archosaurs become the early ancestors to a group of animals we call dinosaurs <clears throat> that expand in size and variety over time. So this is kind of the... That's a really nice chart. That kind of explains a whole lot of things, doesn't it? Yeah, it was. It's a very well done chart by a paleontologist who worked here, um, oh, by gosh, so somewhere between, between 2000 and about 2014. And, uh, and Scott Harmon, and he did, he did a really good job. And there's even more um, genera known and species known now from the time that he did this. But... It, it gives a good idea of the fact that, you know, this is, evolution is not linear. That it's, it's like a tree. You know, you have this branching situation. And so way down here we have the early archosaurs, and you can see a line branching off that become, you know, crocodiles primarily. You would also put lizards and snakes down in this area. And then you see the branching to the familiar types of dinosaurs that a lot of kids are familiar with. Um, <clears throat> everything from the big long neck dinosaurs we call sauropods to the armored type dinosaurs ones with horns ones with spikes and plates on their back some with scoots and plates on their bodies uh, and then the duck bills right the hadrosaurs over here <clears throat> and over here on the right everybody's favorite group of dinosaurs the two-legged theropods right primarily carnivorous in nature okay and what's really fascinating is over the last 50 years, it's, it's an old idea has gained a lot of traction because of the kind of fossils we're finding as we've accessed more places in the, in the world to find them. And that is the dinosaur 
a theropod dinosaur to bird transition. So if you look at the very top of these transitional forms, and you can see the anatomical gradations that take place in the skeletons, because all of these drawings are fairly, uh, pretty accurate, okay, <clears throat> well, pretty well done by Scott, and you get up to what? Chicken, pigeon, right? So, yeah. Wow. And it's laid out in the, in the, it, like a tree, to yes. where you can see each little branch and how it how it branches off. This is just a. It's no different than you doing poster. your own family genealogy. Yeah. Uh, where you wind up with a tree, right? You've got uh, you've got two parents. You've got you know four grandparents. You've got eight great grandparents. You've got uh, you know sixteen right. great great grandparents. Yeah, yeah, sure, right. But it, it it's neat. Yeah. <clears throat> and at the end of the walk through time, we're at that Mesozoic. Uh, beginning of the Mesozoic era, the boundary, and we open up into the big hall, and the big hall is where we have, uh, it, we've left the Triassic period, which is right here at the end of the walk through time, which is the first period of the Mesozoic. We had the archosaurs running around, dinosaurs have started to get big and differentiate, and we blend into the Jurassic period. And the Jurassic time period is the period we dig in here, on the ranch, which is right next to the dinosaur center. And people can come to the ranch and, and dig, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And how does that work? You well, we have a program. It does cost. I mean, this is the way we get our revenue. But uh, groups of people can come, and we assign a person to them, you know, a person who's knowledgeable. Uh, it might be one of the paleontologists on staff, and it might be, uh, but it might be a college student that we, we bring in every summer, a group of interns. And they're usually majoring in geology or biology. Um, some of them are well into paleontology. And we train them to take people up and mentor them into our dig sites. And right now we've got about, well, we've got about 15 dig sites that we can work. But in any given summer, we'll only have about four or five open because that's all the staffing we can provide to handle. So we have day-long programs, half-day programs. It's a great activity for families. And approximately what does a half-day program cost? I think the half-day program is like 50 bucks a person, and there's a break for, there's a, like no charge for some kids under a certain age. Um, you can check on the website on that. I'm a little rusty on the fees, but... Um, and then you guys provide all uh, well, the tools they, and everything else. Yeah, we provide the tools and, and the introduction to basic paleontology techniques. Um, starts at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, the full day program goes till about four o'clock in the afternoon. In the summertime, a lot of people are ready to <coughs> ready to come off of what we call the hill, the ridge. All of our dig sites are up on a ridge, and uh, so they're usually ready to quit about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. In which case, they come down here and get a personal tour of the museum. We take them into the lab. We show them how we prepare the dinosaurs. They get to uh, use the tools. They get to work on some fossil bones if they want. We'll show them the molding and casting facility if they want to see that. So it's kind of up to them how they want to finish the day. They can stay up in the field all day if they want to as well. We provide lunch. Wow. Uh, it's a what, pretty good activity. It's, it's the meat and potatoes of what we do, providing an educational experience. And for and, some kids that are that are wanting to experience this and get into it, what an opportunity! Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, a lot of parents are here bringing their kids because right. it's the kid that wants to come. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, you and, know. And, and this room here is what probably 120 foot long and oh gosh, I 40 foot, 50 foot that. wide. Yeah, and you've got one dinosaur in here that reaches just about end to end. Yeah, that's Jimbo the Supersaurus, Supersaurus Viviani. 
He's 32 meters long. That's about 106 feet. And it's the largest dinosaur um, mounted in Wyoming. Um, and certainly one of the largest dinosaurs ever found in Wyoming. Uh, and where was found this near one Douglas, found? near Downward Douglas. Douglas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it was found on private property. And thanks to the generosity of the Meisler family in Douglas, it's here. That is yeah. really cool. And interestingly enough, right next to Jimbo, the Supersaurus, we, uh, we also managed to excavate what is so far the smallest dinosaur ever found in Wyoming. Oh. Which is right here. It's our newest exhibit. This is Lori. Lori is what we would call a Manoraptoran, or for short, a raptor, as people know them, right? You can see that Lori's anatomy and structure here, very similar to a very famous fossil called Archaeopteryx, right? Which <clears throat> came from Europe, right? It is a Manoraptoran as well. And the very well-known to most kids, Velociraptor, because of Jurassic Park, Okay, Velociraptor is also a Manoraptor and belongs to a group called the Dromaeosaurs. Lori, we believe, belongs to what we call a sister group called the Troodontids. Okay, the Troodonts. Right? But you can see that she, we say she, we don't know if it's male or female, but, but um, you can see the sickle claw right, on the foot. And that's one of the characteristics that we look for. So... Um, Found right next to Jimbo. Really? Yes. <laughs> Same site. You can see here's a map of Jimbo's bones laid out. And that insert shows that little tiny sector over there against the border of the bone bed. And that's where Laurie was found. That had to have been interesting when they were digging out the big ones and come across. Well, I'll tell you. It, uh, it confused them? For, for, <laughs> we were very, very lucky. And uh, Bill Wall, our lead paleontologist here, he was working in that area. And, uh, you know, to this day, he cringes because he put his shovel into the, They were just trying to expand the, the Jimbo site. And he put his shovel, you know, into the semi-consolidated rock material. And he took a whack out of it. And here were bones sticking out, these small, delicate bones. Wow. And he worked feverishly. And he, he believes he was able to uh, get everything. But he... He lies awake sometimes at night, I think, <laughs> wondering whether a bone escaped. But you can see the real bones on display here, and exactly as they were found. Okay, very delicate, right? very small. And you can see the skull up there in the upper left. And if you look carefully, you can see the teeth and the mm -hmm. upper jaw. And here's a good diagram to orient you on that. Mm -hmm. right? Wow. So the bones are all on top of each other and kind of clustered. But if you separate them out, as you see in the picture there, you begin to see the components, right? And they're color-coded. Wow. Right, yeah. So the Smithsonian did a nice article for us on, uh, on Laurie uh, last, uh, uh, last summer, and uh, they, they dubbed her the itty-bitty murder bird. <laughs> so once people get into the big room here, they're able to just sort of like, Take a look at the dinosaurs proper. We have Asian dinosaurs here on loan from China. The Chinese equivalent to Stegosaurus with the plates on its back. The small carnivorous dinosaur, sort of the equivalent of Allosaurus that we find here uh, around Thermopolis in, in our bone beds. Uh, Jurassic period carnivore, very well known. Um, so, and little Velociraptor here. Okay, we have two specimens of Velociraptor on display here, found in the Gobi Desert, okay, in China. Mm -hmm. 
supersized crinoids. Yeah, that's a big rock. Right. That's what, probably 20 feet, 15 foot? Yeah, 15, 16 feet across. Five foot high? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And those Very large crinoids. Yeah. Wow. So even here in the big hall, it's, it's, we have things other than just dinosaurs. We have what I like to call the world's longest fossil. It's a trackway here of a horseshoe crab that died in a particular spot. And you can follow his scamper for life. Here again, we believe this is a case of anoxia because he's intact. Okay, this, this horseshoe crab is intact. Not, no other animal form nearby. No, not crushed or anything like that like a landslide, submarine landslide or anything like that. So it appears like he just ran out of oxygen and stopped right there. But he landed over there, and you can see the trackway he's scurrying along. Making and the trackway's probably 30 foot, 40 foot long. Yeah, easily. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Easily. Right. Kind of interesting. Yeah, marine reptiles over here on the right against the wall. We've got examples of the major marine reptiles. Again, these are not classified as dinosaurs any more than the pterosaurs you see up above there, right? <clears throat> so. You got a sea turtle or a turtle. Yes, you know, turtles go back a long way. They go back a long way, right? Long neck plesiosaur and um, short neck pliosaur up here. Okay, pretty good size pliosaur at the top. People often say, well, what did they eat? Well, I say, look at those teeth. Eat anything you wanted to <laughs> in, the, in the ocean, right? And that's a medium-sized plant, so they get bigger than that. One of the things I, I like about the museum is that you can get close to the fossil displays. Yes. Right? You can get up very close. We trust people not to reach in and put their finger oils on, on the displays. Jimbo's bones are down here, a uh, representation of the real bones. He is, of course, a replica because we only found 55% of the skeleton. So we had to manufacture you know, the rest of it in order to have an exhibit. Plus the fact that the real bones would have weighed an awful lot and it wouldn't have been very safe to put them up. And um, you can imagine the amount of steel we would have to hold up an animal, an animal skeleton of this size. But here you can see how big the bones are. And these are the are. actual bones. These are the actual fossils. They're inside of a glass case. Yeah, these were the basis for making uh, molds that eventually made a cast of the bones. Wow. And people say, well, how do you know how to make the other bones, the ones you didn't find? Well, vertebrate skeletons are remarkably, in most cases, very symmetrical. So if you have the left lower bone of the one leg, you can make the right lower bone of the other opposite leg right? Right. and vice versa. Ribs pretty much all look alike. All you have to do is allow for gradation of size. Yeah. Wow. So we've got Jimbo here from Douglas. We've got an actual real fossil display of another sauropod, long-necked dinosaur, a Camarasaurus found here on the ridge here at Thermopolis. Very large Camarasaurus, a very long tail. And uh, he's all gnarly looking, all beat up, ribs all crooked and whatnot, because those are the way the fossil bones came out of the ground, just like that. So he's not a replica. He's about 85% complete. Wow. Yeah. And we, we filled in with uh, place, placeholder bones uh, made out of uh, styrofoam, plastic sty and styrofoam, painted tan. We're still digging in the site that he came from. It's a huge bone bed. Lots of other camera sores of all ages represented there. 
And it's one of the dig sites where people can actually go and dig too, by the way. Uh, and as we find the right size bones to fit into that, that, that into Morris, we call them, um, we'll take the placeholders out and put the real bones in. And how many dinosaurs have you found at your dig sites? Um, we've been able to identify, see, I've been here five years, but I remember from the reading that uh, about 23, 24 individuals. Wow. Okay. But that's out of 12,000 some odd bones that have been dug over 27 years here. That's a lot of bones. Yeah, it's a very productive area here around Thermopolis. So, so if somebody's... In one particular formation known as the Morrison. And if somebody shows up here to, to do one of your digs, mm -hmm. uh, chances are pretty good that they're going to actually be working on bones. And... Oh, chances are very good. I, mean, I can't guarantee it, but right. if you set them to work in a place where you're, okay, this is, we're enlarging the dig site. You work over here. This is all new territory. And they start, we teach them how to take apart the rock wall, okay, how to do good housekeeping, right? Because you're always creating a mess. So you got to spend a lot of your time sweeping up rock material and get it out of the way. Um, but every once in a while, somebody's going to run into something brand new. They'll run into a new, a new bone, a new bone element, or some kind of an element, including teeth. We have a couple of sites that are very good at producing teeth. So, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then you mentioned the Allosaurus. Earlier. Right here, yeah. This is a uh, sort of moderate-sized Allosaurus here. Long before T-Rex came along, in the late Jurassic period, this we think was the top predator in North America. Yeah. And that's a Wyoming discovered. Uh, uh, this particular one, I think, uh, is based on a specimen came out of Utah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but you do find allosaur material. We find allosaurus here in, in our Thermopolis beds. I yeah. was thinking that the allosaurus was first discovered as far as uh, whatever, someplace here in Wyoming. Ah, that's a good question. I, quite off the top of my head, not sure I can remember what state the first allosaur material was found. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was one. It could have been Colorado or, or, or Utah. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, the first T-Rex material was found in Wyoming. But it really? wasn't, wasn't very complete. The first really good complete skeleton came out of uh, Montana. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is a moderate-sized allosaur. Uh, we have an adult and a juvenile here. And they're in this. And it looks like the allosaurus is eating. They're attacking Stegosaurus <laughs> here, yes. Stegosaurus is in big trouble. Right yeah, there, Stegosaurus yeah. is on his side. Right, so, yeah, he's down out for the count. This Allosaurus is about 28 feet long. They could get to be 34, 35, 36 feet long. Probably weighed about three and a half tons, something like that. But that's, uh, the big ones, you know, still probably could move pretty good. And unlike T-Rex, if you notice, no dinky forearms for Mr. Allosaurus. He's got some pretty good forearms and three big claws on the end. So I think uh, he's got predator written all over him, I think. Yeah. So, But for those that just absolutely have to see a T-Rex, we've got what is now, I think, about the fifth largest T-Rex known. And is this a replica or is this? This uh, is a replica of Stan, a very famous T-Rex that was found in South Dakota. And um, it's a first generation replica, meaning that these uh, replicas were made from the original molds off of the, the, the original bones. Uh, it's a pretty good size, pretty good size uh, Tyrannosaurus. And we've got it mounted in such a way that you can see the business end up close and personal. A lot closer than what I'd really want to see it. 
Yeah, this is just amazing. And next to uh, Stan, we have um, we have a small ceratopsy in here, right? Uh, Protoceratops. This actually is an animal that uh, so far is found uh, in Asia, China, Mongolia. Um, but we also have the North American Triceratops, which is also the state dinosaur of Wyoming. A lot of Triceratops material found in Wyoming. And uh, whereas stands a replica, um, Mary, the, the Triceratops, is a real fossil bone. And a pretty good size one, too. Are you finding these? The, the uh, I just lost the name. These animals existed in the time period following the Jurassic. Okay. This is a part of what we call the Cretaceous period. So T-Rex and Allosaurus were not contemporaries, as far as we can tell. We've never found them in the same time horizon. Okay. So these animals, this is the, what we call the Cretaceous period grouping here, as opposed to the Jurassic period grouping over there, which was earlier. So here we're talking about animals that were really reaching their apex at the very end prior to the extinction of the dinosaurs. So we're talking, you know, six, uh, 75 to 65 million years ago. More ceratopsians over here, <clears throat> representatives. And in the back over there in the corner, we have a really good myosaurus, which is a hadrosaur, commonly known as duckbills because of the shape of their, their jaws and their mouths. And there are a couple of duckbills back there. And a replica of a Myasaur nest because it was the uh, <clears throat> not the first dinosaur that it was found in associated with nest egg nests, but uh, certainly one that was found with many egg nests. They apparently were very nurturing <clears throat> animals. Uh, the Myasaur that Myasaur came from Montana. No, as far as we know, all dinosaurs laid eggs. Okay, I say that as far as we know, because we don't find a lot of nests. Myosaurs, um, some ceratopsian nests have been found, um, but I don't think anybody's ever found a T-Rex nest or a triceratops nest. I don't think anybody's ever found a sauropod nest, long-necked dinosaur nest. So if they do find eggs, it would be from one of those there? So far. Okay. So far. Yeah. I'd be one of the great finds if we ever could find a nest from, say, one of the big sauropods, like, you know, <clears throat> Apatosaurus or Diplodocus or, <clears throat> or even Jimbo, for that matter. So we still dig the Jimbo site. For one thing, we never found the skull. Skulls are hard to find, they're very rare, um, especially among sauropods. Well, to begin with, relatively speaking, they weren't that big. So uh, chances of survival are pretty, pretty slim. But um, we keep looking for it. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that a brain that size could work all of that. <laughs> that's a huge brain. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, yeah, but I can tell you that some recent research that's been done um, is demonstrating that the brain size alone isn't necessarily a severe limitation. Okay, so we have brain cells we call neurons, right? Just like you have skin cells, just like you have heart cells, muscle cells, but brain cells called neurons. And uh, there's research being done. One of the reasons why birds are pretty smart and they don't have big brains. Right. 
it uh, has more to do with the number of neurons you have and the number of pathways that can be built among the neurons to, for signals to be distributed and, and sent. So, uh, yeah, did they have, you know, iman- you know, big processing power like we do to be imaginative? No, they didn't build highways and buildings and, and probably didn't have language and all that good stuff. You know, we've got the neocortex in our brains for that. But, but it doesn't mean that, uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is that there's research now indicating that small brains alone does not necessarily assume that the animal was unintelligent or didn't have enough brain power to, well, they were successful animals. They oh, lived for they a long time. Yeah. So they were adapted to their environment. So they had enough brain power to do whatever they had to do. Right. You know, I mean, I think that's one way to look at it. But it doesn't mean that they, they, they weren't, not, that they were unsocial or they didn't have a sense of, uh, of their young or anything like right. that. We don't know. We just don't know about these, these things. There's only so much you can tell from buried skeletons. Exactly. Right? But it sure is neat seeing them put back together. I mean, you can, <clears> you can you get a coloring like... book with dinosaurs, you can color them any color you want. Because, <laughs> right? you know, yeah. although there's a lot of research being done on that, looking for microscopic hints and fossilized bones as to what their colors may have been. And then what's this room over here? Well, that's the lab. The two big windows there showing you the lab where we work on preparing uh, the fossils. And you can see they come out of the field in rough shape sometimes. So right there you have what we call one half of a plaster jacket. And it's a, the plaster jacket is a burlap. You can see burlap right. there, tough fabric. Burlap strips soaked in building plaster. And you slap it on top of the fossils, put some kind of barrier between the plaster and the bones. Uh, usually paper towels, some people use aluminum foil, uh, and when it hardens, it creates a shell, okay? And you do this prior to excavating a block of rock out of the ground with the fossil bones in it. It's very, very rare that you take fossil bone out of the rock in the field as a separate bone, nice and clean. You don't usually have time for that because we have to work in the summer. Right. And, you know, and in most places, access is limited sometimes and just the weather considerations and whatnot, especially here in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the plaster jacket is put over an isolated section of rock that has fossil bones in it. It might be one big bone or it might be a bunch of bones. And they're very often on top of each other. So depending on how the animals died, and sometimes they died under extreme circumstances like a, in a mud flow or something like that. Right. So you got bio, bodies piled up or a flood, water flood. And so you just got to do the separating out in the lab. So you take these blocks back and you reverse the process, get the plaster jacket off and start going in with hand tools and air tools to chip away at the rock and excavate it away and off of the fossil bone. Okay, and you can see it's a slow process. Oh, you can yeah. imagine how slow that is. So uh, we estimate it for every hour in the field you spend on a on a fossil uh, <clears throat> bone. In this case, um, you got six to ten hours of work in the lab. So, wow! Right now we're working on hadrosaur material, which is what uh, I don't see any hadrosaur material visible here. But there's places where it's on the counter over there on the opposite side 
this big plaster jacket here happens to be sauropod material, long neck dinosaur material, um, and came from the Jimbo site. But it's not another supersaurus, we don't think. Right now it's starting to look like Camarasaurus. So <clears throat> a cousin, right? A smaller sauropod. We're also I don't know on... how you keep them all, all apart in your head or, <laughs> no. or just looking at bones and being able to figure that out. But well, I guess he... that's why you're a paleontologist. Well, the thing is, the reason we give them different names is because there are these differences between, in their anatomy. Uh-huh. Okay? The proportions of their bones are slightly different. Mm-hmm. The dimensions of their bones, right? The way the bones go together can be very similar, but we see these differences. <clears throat> so we're also working on a stegosaur material, that big jacket over there with the lamp is over it. That's uh, uh, the pelvic area from a stegosaur. Okay. And both sides of the pelvis are together, and in between it are what we call the sacral vertebrae, right? That are go right down the middle of the, where the pelvic bones attached to it. So we got this really huge, it's pretty hard to see from here, but a really big you know, pelvic area. So we're trying to ex- get that all cleaned up as one unit. So... The rest of the skeleton is is sort of catch-as-catch-can. We don't have an awful lot of the rest of the skeleton, but tailbones and uh, ribs and the pelvic area, what we have right now so far. And that came from Wyoming. And what do you do with all the bones as you get them? If you found 40 or 50 uh, skeletons, Mm -hmm. do you ship those out to other museums? Do you keep them all here? No, they go into collections. Do they go, go into collections. collections here, yes. here in Thermopolis? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so you've got like a big basement or something that has yeah, most tons of, them, of... Most of them are upstairs. Well, yeah. okay, but yeah. someplace yeah. That, that stores... Right. Wow. Yeah. So that people is... have the ability to work in here as well. We have a, a, a program called Paleo Prep. If you don't want to go out in the field, you can come in here and spend a half a day, maybe even a whole day... Um, you know, working in the lab, and we'll teach you the lab techniques, the basic lab techniques. Everything and now, is from, this open for, for kids? Like yeah, school, kids working here all the time. Kids? Yes. Wow. Under our supervision, of course. That's so great. you've got, so, so what all do you have for programs? You've got the, the dig site program. Right, you've got dig for a day, program. dig for a day, or it can be multiple days. The half-day program we call Shovel Ready. We have special one-day events for kids called Kids Dig. People can get their kids to sign up for. Now, as you know, with COVID-19 right now, the schedule's a little up in the air. Right. And we've had a lot of, a lot of cancellations because people haven't been able to travel or get going. So we're kind of taking it week by week here as the summer progresses. Okay. Um, but we do have those kids digs that we have. And sometimes we'll have maybe 15 kids. I think this year, right, right now, I think we're limiting them to 10. Um, then we've got, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got the paleo prep program here where people can sign up just to work in the lab. And we'll start them off with toothbrushes and water and dental picks and picking away at the fossil bones and then graduate up to using the air tools, right, where they kind of kind of chisel away at it with these vibrating points. And, uh, and it's not as hard as it looks. It's really fairly simple. Um, the lab can be, in the past, has been jammed, but... Because of the situation, we're going to have people spaced out. So we figure we can handle probably about eight people at any one time. You know, so and that's, I think, a three-and-a-half or four-hour program. Extendable, I guess, if you want to do it. Um, we have worked with a lot of set uh, classroom-type 
activities. Some of those have been canceled up until at least the end of July. There's still a couple on the books where people are going to be coming in in August. They got their fingers crossed uh, that everything will be still okay for that. So we take take part in what we call the Road Scholar Program, but unfortunately, that's for mature adults. Um, we've been heavily involved with them, but they've canceled everything for the summer. Uh, they had to do it because they, they work on a, a real forward pre-planning situation. You know, it's not right. something they can throw together at the last minute. Uh, we still have, uh, we also have a, a program for high school students called the Dinosaur Academy. And a small group of high school students come and spend a week here. It's a very intensive week and they get a background in geology because the Thermopolis area is a great place to go with right. the canyon and everything oh, for yeah. geology and uh, also in paleo and in museum work out in the field and whatnot. So it's a pretty intense five days. And um, so... Now, does this come with room and board also? Well, uh, no, it doesn't. So you've got to find your own place to stay? Yeah, they have to stay. The motel in Thermopolis Motel or or camp out or whatever, yeah. And then their own food they've got to provide for too? Yeah, except during the day we do lunches. We do lunches. We do lunches for the dig programs and all of that as well. Yeah, but they're on their own outside of that. I'd still be our pockets program. aren't deep enough to do the you know the first class treatment. Right. We well, I just did, I can't just take care of everything. High school kids. I didn't know if, <laughs> if it was up to them to take care of. No, it is. It's up to them to have their. Yeah. So so what happens is that families will come and their their, their kid will go to the dinosaur academy. And, uh, you know, mom and dad, we'll, we'll see you later. Okay. Well, then, there's lots to do around here. Besides, <laughs> yeah. yeah, besides the dinosaur stuff, Thermopolis is yeah. full of things. And then you've got Cody just to the north. And, oh, sure. And yeah. whitewater rafting mm-hmm. down the canyon and, and all kinds of things. We had three there. We had three, uh, three scheduled and two had to cancel. We still have one on, on tap for, for August. Cool. And those are usually small groups anyway, so... I don't see that changing very much. We would probably take 10 to 12 high and, school students. And how do you find out about these programs? Online. And, and what's or your, pick up the phone and call us. Yeah. And, and it's the Wyoming Dinosaur Center. Yeah, wyomingdinosaurcenter.org right, is the domain. What, okay, yeah. .org. Yep, and uh, you know, they, they can call us. You know, so and you've got a good website. Yeah, it's a three hundred seven area code. All of Wyoming is three hundred seven. Oh, we we still are. That's right. Yes, and uh, I just wanted to make sure and get right, all that information out while we're it's talking. Eight six four two nine nine seven. Eight six four two nine nine seven. And you can get all the information you want mm-hmm. there. You can talk to the executive director if you want, mm-hmm. Angie, and she'll give you all the all the. That's who I set it. up this this podcast with. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, no. This is this is really a, a neat place. I think given the situation we have this summer, we are probably one of the destinations that really not affected all that much. You can come here and have a full WDC experience with just minor modifications. Just, we just ask people to keep their distance. We as staff will wear masks, okay? But if it's a family unit and they're going up on a dig, we don't require them to wear masks. Okay, if we have a mixed group of people, we strongly suggest that they wear masks, but uh, we're not, you know, barring the doors to them if they don't. What we do do is say then just keep your distance from other people, other groups. Go through the museum and we're big enough that groups of people can go through here at a very, very comfortable distance from each other and, you know, experience the museum. And we're, like I say, we've trimmed our, our, our sizes down on our programs to, you know, just kind of stay within the guidelines 
that this state has, has asked us to do. So that may loosen up even more as the weeks go on, we'll see. But, uh, but most of those activities were always small groups anyway. It's like the dig for right. day, it's usually a family or a group of four or a group of six. We have had sessions in the past where we've had 30 people out in a, one of our dig sites digging because we have some pretty extensive sites. After 27 years, you get, right. you know, you get, you can expand your sites quite a bit. And we have a number of sites we're reactivating from the past this summer. Been working on them these last few weeks. And guess what? We're finding more dinosaur bones. So, <laughs> yeah. That's just so cool. So it's really a good time to come if you want to have a high high prospect of actually working on dinosaur bone in the ground. And a one-on-one. On one. And and with the lack of people, it's going to be a lot more personal. Yeah, well, it always is personal. We don't, we don't usually take more than, you know, a half a dozen people on a dig. It's so when we get um, overseas groups or, you know, people can only be here for a few number of days, we'll construct a program for them and we'll have maybe, we'll have to have four or five mentors taking 25, 30 young people up. We've done that in the past. And we pick a dig site and it's theirs for a few days. That's cool. That type of thing. But most of the time it is, most of the times the activities are small groups, certainly 10 and under. So it really doesn't change for us too much. Just a few more precautions and uh, sanitizing things. You know, we wipe down the railings all the time. We keep the museum fairly clean. And uh, so it's, I guess that's my way of saying we really are a good place to visit given the situation because there are no real severe restrictions to enjoying the experience here. Right. That is, that is way cool. So is there anything else we need to see here or we kind of wrapping it up? Well, I, unless you want to go behind the scenes and see some of the areas in the back. But... I always want to go behind the scenes. <laughs> There's nothing spectacular about it, that's for sure. <clears throat> you know, it's one of those things that uh, I've been to several museums, and the mm-hmm. behind the scenes is sometimes more interesting than what's on the floor. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so people who do digs for a day um, or even shovel readies, and, of course, everything's subject to weather. So if a thunderstorm rolls in, we have to get people off of the ridge. It's 500 feet higher than we are here, and we're out in the open, and we get lightning, and we get these downpours that will last a half an hour. The road becomes, you know, really muddy, and it's not great. You need four-wheel drive to get up there anyways. So um, what we do then is we'll expand what they can do down here. If people and, don't understand what a Wyoming downpour is, <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things that we can have six inches of rain in 15 minutes. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I, it I've feels like it. that sometimes. I've seen it. I mean, it, the sky just flat out falls. Opens and you can up. go from, from a road yeah. that's passable to – and the, it never sinks in all that deep. You know, you may only have an inch of mud on <clears> top because it doesn't sink down three feet and runs off. That's right, yeah. But you can have a hell of a mess in, in such short order. You sure can, which is why we have to get off the ridge. That's why you have to get off right. the ridge. But even in a normal day, like I say, most people are done digging by 2 o'clock because right. it's, it gets hot in uh, July and August. So they come down here, they get the museum tour, we go through it. We bring them back here. They get to see where we store some of the stuff. This is not all the storage we've got, but this is all part of those 12,000-plus dinosaur bone material that's come out of here. Um, We also have two other buildings that are pretty big, and they're full of plaster jackets and boxes of material waiting to be prepared in, in the lab. Now, a lot of it is more of the same, okay? I mean, it's hundreds of bones from camerasaurs. 
you know, lots of bones from Diplodocus uh, and Apatosaurus, um, some Allosaur material still waiting to be prepped as well. Um, we have a small staff, right? So this is the kind of stuff we pull off and we'll put into the lab and you know, people get to work on it. This is just a, a part of what we have stored. We've got eight shelves high. Yeah, but that's the, the eight shelves <clears throat> high are going up 15, 20 feet. And we've also got back here, we've got some total of about six, 7,000 Myasaurus bones from Montana that we're working on in the lab, as wow. I mentioned before. So they're back here as well. So some of the material here is from out of state that we work on. It's one way we get some revenue too by doing preparation for other people. And uh, so basically a storage area, um, break room and all that stuff. That's why it's kind of a multiple use area here. Collections is upstairs. Um, <clears throat> this is the lab. So you get to see what you were looking at through the window. The sauropod jacket. You see how hard the plaster jacket is. Okay. Pretty good protection. It's an old technique. Been using it for 170 years. And uh, it works, and it's not expensive. Yeah, yeah. You this can see labs set up really nicely for for working on this. Bones are not always pretty, right? Oh. And they got to be glued together. So that's all part of that sauropod. These are Stegosaurus rib sections here, and so you clean them up as best you can. Preservation on some of these was really poor. They were all pitted and highly weathered, they weren't found too deep. They were near the surface. So they've taken their beating over the centuries. But uh, so the light brown stuff you see is epoxy. It dries, it's like a putty and it dries really hard. And so we fill in all the areas that are, so we can kind of smooth it out, okay, and then try to treat them and <clears throat> make them look as close to real life as possible. Notice they come out bent and broken and you know, that's what happened. Well, I guess if we got buried for 150 million years, we wouldn't look too good either, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so this is part of the Stegosaurus pelvis here. Um, some pieces have broken off of it. We had to flip it over, and when we did, the fact that it is not well-preserved, pieces broke off, as you can see what it looks like here. So... <clears throat> So yeah, so uh, most of our programs will, will include people coming back in here and seeing this sort of thing. And in some cases, if they want to, they can actually work on this material. Mm -hmm. You gotta chip away all of this rock material, get it off of, this used to be covered with stuff like this. Okay, it's all been taken off. <clears throat> wow. <clears throat> it does, it does. It's very tedious work and you have to be patient. So you I see, we have I a storage problem in the lab. We have so much stuff that we have it piled up. We've got make special containers for them. Um, so it's just a hodgepodge of things. Here's some more. You can, again, you can see how rough some of this stuff is. So the idea is you got to get all of this off and get these separated and clean this up. And this is what you're going to wind up with. You're going to wind up with an actual fossil bone. Right? So, but once you get down to where you're getting them pretty clean, you know, you start to see what you've got, right? So here we have a vertebra, long line of right. section out of the backbone, right? Big cylindrical body, superstructure up here, processes we call them, coming off, right? Uh, these are these are surfaces that interlock with the 
the vertebra next to it, right? They interlock so the vertebra can't twist. We have the same kind of basic structure in our vertebrae and our backbone as well. And of course, this hole here, you know what that's for, right? It's for the spinal cord. The spinal cord, yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> our vertebrae don't, they're not quite as tall as that, but they look pretty much the same. They have the same architecture, so to speak. So, so we're coming off of the winter where we had to shut down for a while because of COVID-19. So the lab is kind of in a, that hasn't really been cleaned up yet and gotten the stage set for working again. But that will change coming this weekend and next week as soon as we get done reconditioning the sites. So we have our first digs for a day this weekend. Cool. That's great. Which is only about two weeks later than they normally would start. Okay. More dinosaur bones. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack, thank you very much for giving us the tour. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, spending some time with us and explaining how all this works. And again, your website for any of the dig information or, or any of the information on the museum is Wyoming Dinosaur Center. Center. Dot org. Right. And uh, just so everybody knows, when you come into Thermopolis, which uh, Thermopolis is a nice little town. They've got hot springs, hence the name Thermopolis. Lots to do here. You're 90 miles from Cody, uh, which is the gateway to Yellowstone Park coming from the east. So if you're coming from the south or the east, Thermopolis is a very easy stop. Uh, it's a little bit hard to find this museum. You've got to kind of follow. I don't know if your tracks are still nice and green all through. They're the a little time, worn, but yeah, you worn. follow the signs though. We do, they have, do signs. have signs. Right, yeah. and, and you yeah. come on in and go through uh, Hot Springs State Park is one way to do it, or else right. you can bypass that and come right down the main street of Thermopolis right. and circle on back around. Across the river, got to go across the river. On the east side of the river. And you can see it up on the. Uh, east side of town. It sits up on top right. of a hill. Big green building. With a big dinosaur on the outside right, of it. Yeah. And so it, it's very findable. And if you have any questions, everybody in Thermopolis knows where this place is. I would not miss this museum if I was traveling through for anything. It is that nice. Your admission costs aren't bad. Hasn't, they haven't changed the admission costs in 12 years. Wow, that's great. And I had a good friend came to visit me one time. He's a geologist for ExxonMobil. He's been all over the world doing things for him. He came through here and said that the specimens you have here surpass just about anything that he's seen anywhere else in the world as far as the collection here. It's a world-class dinosaur museum. It is a must-see. I think the strength of the collection is that there's something, there's fossil material from just about every period of time as we recognize them and name them, okay, dating back to the very beginning of life up until even some mammals that we didn't even take a look at. I mean, we don't have a big mammal collection. We don't have any. We do have some uh, saber-toothed cats. And we've got a killer pig. And, uh, yeah, so it's... Uh, this is pretty interesting, but uh, we're a little short on the mammals. The dinosaurs are the mainstay, but we do have something of every time period. And uh, and the specimens are, are super clean, super uh, yes. visual. I mean, it's one of those things that when you're looking at some of these real old 
specimens, the the definition to it and the visual is just unbelievable. Oh yeah, everything that's out is is, is, is top is notch stuff. Yeah, it's not. You know, there's no junk. No junk. No. <laughs> like Nobody, to put, it, put it bluntly, right? Yeah, yeah. If you and I signed the dinosaur it, museums anywhere else, and you come here, you're still going to be highly impressed. And our signage is designed place. to not be too technical, right? And uh, e- easily understandable. And if there's anybody around and you have questions, if we're not otherwise occupied, we'll come out and talk to you and answer your questions as best we can. So. Once again, thank you very much, Jack. And I'll give you a copy of this when, when it comes out so that you can have it on your record. Oh, thank you, and, Lauren. Uh, and thank you for visiting. Well, and, and again, we appreciate your time and your knowledge. Your knowledge has been awesome. So we'll take her from there. All the road and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny. Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?